we are in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 2. So if you want to turn with me uh, to Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to kind of jump all over to a few different spots, but mostly Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. I do, however, want to give you a little bit of background for this whole thing. Uh, so I want to show you one verse at the very beginning of Philippians. Well, not the beginning. It's the 27th verse of the first chapter of Philippians. Philippians 1:27. This is kind of Paul's heart for the, the Philippian people and just us as, us as Christians, as believers in general. Here we go. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There is a theme in this verse, and it is unity. Unity. We are together in this thing. We are together as believers in this life. We are unified. We are together. And then last week, Tony preached, or two weeks ago, Tony preached on the first verses of, of Philippians 2, and it was, it was all about, we have the mind of Christ. We can have Christ's mindset. And, and as we looked at Philippians 2, 1 through 11, what we saw is that at the very core of who Jesus was, was this idea of humility. Jesus was God. I mean, he was God. He was God. And yet, he came to serve. And yet, he came to die. And not just die, but die on the cross. Okay, he became nothing. He became a servant. He was humble to his core. And so if I could say, here, is, here are two words to take into the sermon this morning. It is unity through humility. Can we be united in our humility? All right, so let's put Philippians 2, 12 through 18 up on the screen, and I'll read it. Follow along with me right now. Therefore, my dear brothers, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky and as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What an awesome, awesome word that we get to talk about this morning from Philippians. Let's pray together real quick and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, this time is for you. We are your people, this is your truth, and we need it desperately. On our own, we cannot be changed by your truth. We can't will ourselves to, we can't force ourselves to, so we need your spirit right now to do a work inside of our hearts. God, I pray for the words that come out of my mouth, that you would bring power to them, that they would be your words and not mine. And I pray, God, for the distractions of this room, God, that you would just send them right out, and that we would be all here with our minds, with our hearts, and we'd be ready to, to live different because of your truth. Amen. All right. So, again, let's put up Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Here we go. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
Let's just stop right there for a second. As you have always obeyed. There are so many times where we stand right up here and we talk to you guys and you're hearing a passage from scripture where the person who's writing the letter or talking is saying, get it right. Come on, figure this stuff out. You've blown it. Come on, let's change. That's not what this is. It's a little bit refreshing. Paul is writing to the Philippians and he says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed. They've been getting it right. Paul's like walking around and giving high fives. Nice job, Philippians. And not only have they been obeying, but look at where they've been obeying. They've been, you've been obeying not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Okay, pretend you're a kid. Mom's in the room. How easy is it for you to obey, to put on your very best behavior, to look just right, to be really kind to your brother and sister? Then mom walks out of the room, and the real you comes out. Let's go! Going crazy, being wild and stuff. Paul is, is, is giving them high fives again because they've been a certain way when he's been there. That's easy. Now he's gone, and they're doing all the more. Awesome. Awesome. And so here we go. Now much more in my absence. This is a difficult verse. Let's, let's, let's look at it, read it together. Here we go. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation? Uh, no. No. James, I thought that like salvation was through grace. I thought that you couldn't like work for your salvation. I thought that you had nothing to do with where you're ultimately going. I thought heaven was a gift. It's about grace, right? It's about faith and, and believing in Jesus as your savior, right? Why does this passage say you've got to work out your salvation, James? That's a great question to ask. That's a phenomenal question to ask. Well, if Paul was here right now, who wrote this letter, we could ask him that question to say, Paul, what's up with that? Why the inconsistency? And he would do this. He would go, are you guys ready? And he would take you not to five verses, not to 10 verses, not to 20 verses, but to like over 50 verses of his own words where he would take us all over the letters that he's written where he would say over and over and over and over and over and over. I could go on again. And he would say, salvation, it's not in your hands. There is no cosmic scale. You don't need to be a certain amount of goodness to earn God's favor. You can't earn your way to heaven. He would say that. He would say, if you hear nothing else this morning, make sure you've got that figured out. You can't earn your salvation. And yet, why does it sound inconsistent when he says, work out your salvation? Why is that? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What Paul meant is that he was calling the Philippians to action to put effort into their Christian lives. This isn't so that they can work on their salvation in terms of accomplishing it, but work out their salvation. To see their salvation evident as they live their lives. To activate what God has already freely given them. I'm going to say this, hear this. We must work out what God in His grace has worked in. We must work out what God has already worked in. We have been given an incredible gift. 
We have been saved by faith, by grace. Now the challenge is go to work. Figure out how to use the change that has happened inside of you and work it into your everyday life. How do we take what's happened inside of us and live it? How do we take what's happened inside of us and live it? Uh, I got married about 14 years ago. My wife, Emily, we uh, got married and I was in seminary at the time, so the plan was to move to Canada. That's where I was in seminary. We were going to move back to Canada. So Emily owned a house, and we had arranged for these four girls to rent our house from us when we moved away. Well, then she got pregnant. What a bummer. Emily got pregnant, and I could no longer go. I couldn't go back to seminary. We decided to stay close to my family, decided to stay close to doctors and friends and all of that. So now we own a house, but we've already agreed to let some girls live there. So we didn't feel like we could back out on there. So we needed to buy another house or rent another house or whatever. So we went to Emily's dad and we said, yo, can you help us out? And he gave us a little bit of money and we were able to buy this like 900 square foot bungalow in the very center of Lincoln, 3761 B Street if you want to check it out, Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever. Check it out. It was this nice little two bedroom house that a man had lived in for like 400 years and it looked like a man had lived in it for 400 years. We moved into this house and the first thing that we did was we destroyed the walls. We took a whole bunch of walls out we touched every surface of this house. We put new floors in, we painted everything, we put a new kitchen in, we put a new bathroom in, we put an air conditioner in the house, we put in a new heating system, we completely finished the basement. And, and I knew nothing about how to do any of this. It was just kind of like, well, James, are you up for it? And I was like, well, why not? Let's try it. Now, if I did have pictures of this house, I would say to you all, it wasn't very good. But here's the thing. When I finished that basement, here's the, here, let me show you. When I, when I was finishing the basement, this is how I did it. One of the things that I had to do first was frame, right? I had to build walls in order to cover it and drywall and, you know, all those things in order to paint it and make it look like a real house. So I got out my trusty hammer and I got out my nails and I was like, I'm going to build a basement. And so I was like, all right. And by the way, I'm already way better at this than I was like 14 years ago. So, you know, I got this and then I, I bring it over and I kind of hold it just so. And, and then I start to hammer it in. And trust me, this took me forever. It took me forever. I needed something to change. I needed something to make my work easier, to make my work better. And then... And then I got this. Then I got this. And when this entered my life, things got better. Things got better. Now, I received this as a gift in between our first house and our second house. I received this as a gift. I didn't buy it for myself. I didn't go to the nail gun building school and learn how to build one for myself. This was a gift. I received this. But again... I got this as a gift, and, and I got to use it, right? So uh, I just like, you know, I... No, there's like something to it, right? Like I couldn't just all of a sudden use it. I had to learn how to use it. I didn't just pick it up and all of a sudden I was a master of it, and, and I could use it as well as I possibly could. There was more to it. I had to learn how to oil it. So that way the nails would shoot powerfully and the, and the gun would last for longer. I had to learn how to 
loaded full of nails. Because if you shoot it without nails, that's pretty terrible and boring. I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn how to hook it up. Because, again, nails are in there. I can pull the trigger and nothing's happening. I had to learn how to hook it up. And then it was more than that. I had to learn how to shoot it safely. Because there have been plenty of times, and when I say plenty, I mean almost like 20, where I've shot a nail and I've heard bing, 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 as it's like ricocheting around my basement or my garage or whatever. Never been hurt. Just, we'll put that out there. But I needed to learn how to shoot it safely. But I figured it out, right? Like I worked at something that was given to me and things got better. I'll be right back. So now, let's just see, make sure this makes the right noise. In first service it didn't, I had to go back in and do something different. Aha! Uh -huh. Now I won't shoot it in your direction. I made that mistake in first service too. Just so you know, first service is always way more exciting. So then I was able to very quickly, very easily, you saw how hard it was for me to drive that nail in. All of a sudden, here we go. And there it is. And all of a sudden I go from building a wall every three hours and having crazy cramped arms takes forever to all of a sudden I can put a wall up. It takes me longer to cut the boards than it does for me to put them together. I'm rolling. I was rolling because I had the right tool. But again, it wasn't a tool that, that I had to work for. It was given to me. But in order to make it, as effective as possible for, for its purpose, I had to learn about it. I had to work it out. And so, I learned how to correctly hook it up. I learned how to load it properly. I learned how to oil it. I learned how to safely shoot it. 99.9% .9 of the time, I learned how to safely shoot it. And so, this is what we're talking about. Work your salvation out. There's two, there's two phrases I'm going to, or two words I'm going to give you, justified and sanctified. Okay, so justified is when, when, when God sees us, if we believe that we have been saved by Jesus, we are justified. Justified, the, the short, easy way of saying justified is when God looks at us, it's just as if I'd never sinned. We're perfect. We're blameless. We have been saved. We've been justified. This happens in a moment. Jesus becomes the Lord of our life. We take on him as our savior. We have been saved. We have been justified. What happens after that is the process of sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus in his mind, in his actions, in his heart every single day. When Paul says, work out your salvation, he's saying, hey, guess what? God and you need to work together to become more like Jesus, who very, like a few verses earlier, was incredibly humble, served people, glorified God. This is who you're called to be. Justified and sanctified. I received the gift of the nail gun, but I had to figure out what I was going to do with it. How to use it effectively. Paul is not saying work to save yourself. Work through God's grace. It's an incredible gift to us. Work out your salvation. Verse 12, as we move on. Hey guys. 
Should I take 10 seconds? Catch my breath. All right. So the second part of verse 12, it says, so it's verse says it says, continue to work out your salvation. The second part of verse 12 says, it says, with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does it mean that we cower in fear in relation to God and we're like, oh, God, don't smite me. Oh, God, don't send me to hell. God, don't damn me. Don't, uh, is that how we're living in relationship with God? That's not what this is. Not that we shouldn't have an incredible reverence for who God is, for what he has done, for the saving work that he has done inside of us. We should have incredible reverence for the holiness of God. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about something different. Let me give you three verses that use this same phrase with fear and trembling. The first one is 1 Corinthians 2.3. It says, I came to you in weakness. This is Paul talking to the people of Corinth. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Next one, 2 Corinthians 7.15. And his, his buddy Titus, this is Paul again talking, Titus's affection for you is all the greater because he remembers that you were obedient and you received him with fear and trembling. Same phrase, one more time. This is from Ephesians. Paul again, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart just as you would obey Christ. When Paul is, this is, a, this is a common phrase to him. When he says in fear and trembling, what he's saying is in humility. In humility. Listen to this when I put humility into these verses. I came to you in weakness with humility. And Titus's affection for you is all the greater because he remembers that you are obedient, receiving him with humility. Slaves, obey your human masters in humility, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Humility. We're coming back to it. We're circling back to what we talked about at the very beginning of chapter 2. Jesus was full of humility. And there's a call on us to work out our salvation in humility. Why? Because pride is garbage. There's no room for pride in our hearts. Nothing good happens when we are proud. Nothing good. We are challenged and called to live by God to live in an absolutely dependent place. We're not banging our chests, but living in humility. Recognizing that it's God that saves us and God is at work in us, which we see as we move on into verse 13. So if you put it back up again, verse 12 and 13, it says... You work out your, your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill, fulfill his good purposes. It is God that works in you. Let me say this again, and if, if you're thinking about anything else, come right back here. It is God who is at work in you. If I take God out of here and I say Emily, the name of my wife, for it is Emily who works in me. Okay, I can become a pretty good person. Fill in the blank with somebody else. Uh, Anthony, because he preaches and I listen to him and I learn from him. For it is Anthony who works in you. Again, you can become a pretty good person, but come on. This is God who is at work inside of you. And this word work, I love this word work. In the Greek, the word is, I'm going to hand out, I'm going to give somebody this, so ears perk up. The word that he uses for work is energio. What English word do you think we get from the Greek word energio? Anyone? Hand up. Anybody? Anyone? Isaac all the way in the back. 
Okay, I threw a candy a couple weeks ago and hurt somebody. So I'm gonna walk this back to you. Say it again. Energy, nice work. Energy, when, when, when it says God is at work, it's not a passive work. It's an energetic work. There's an excitement about what he's trying to accomplish inside of you. God is the one who is energetically at work within each of us and within the church, actively transforming us as individuals and corporately. Okay, so I said this and I was pretty loud. I said, God. Okay, this is God. Our awesome, almighty, beautiful, benevolent, compassionate, delivering, everlasting, faithful, holy, loving, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, powerful, redeeming, unequaled, unparalleled creator and sustainer. This is not some weakling. This is not some human. This is not some entity that we have created and made into a thing. This is God who is at work inside of us. Do not take that lightly. Do not miss the significance of a big God, a powerful God, a perfect God at work inside of you. And because of that, we work out our salvation. We live our lives with Him, asking ourselves, what can I do today to become more like the mind of Christ? What can I do today to reflect Him more into my, into my sphere of influence, into my community, into my friend group, into my coworker group? It is God who is bringing energetic work in you. In the last part of verse 13, it says, in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is doing that work inside of us to fulfill his good purpose for our will, for our actions. Now, I don't know if you're sitting there going, man, God sounds pretty selfish. God is doing all this just for him? That's messed up. I feel like I'm pretty good at managing my own life. I feel like I'm pretty good at getting from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. or whatever time it is that I go to bed. I'm pretty good at managing my own life. I don't need God to be working stuff out for me. He has given me all that I need to, to do what I need to do. Well, this verse is saying God is at work in you to will and to bring you to action in order to fulfill his good purposes. So if you're thinking, man, God is selfish, I want to read a verse to you. This is Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. When we live our lives alongside him, when we're asking ourselves, okay, God, how are you moving in me and steering me today? We sense the goodness. When we approach God in humility, we sense the goodness of what he is doing. And for whatever reason, we convince ourselves that we know what we need more than God. I'm coming back to that in a little bit. God is at work accomplishing his purposes in us. Let me read another couple verses to you. This is Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is from the message. Tony sent this to me last night at like 11.30 at night. And I was like, this is so great. So perfect for this moment. Listen to these words. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. God's saying, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. 
Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound like a selfish God? Does that sound like a God who doesn't have our best interests at mind? That sounds like a pretty good God to me. That sounds like the kind of life that I want to live with him. He works in you to, to will and to act to fulfill his good purposes. The truth for today is I work because he does the work in me. I work because he does the work in me. What we're seeing here is God is always at work. And because he is always at work, he's like, join me in this good thing that I'm doing inside of you. It's incredible. It's incredible. It is so good. That's the easy part of this morning's sermon. Here we go. Let's move on in verse 14 and through 16a. Uh, Philippians 2, 14. It says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky and you will, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Okay, it says it right there. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Raise your hand if you grumbled this morning. Anybody grumble this morning? There's a lot of you who are not being honest. It is so inside of us to grumble and argue at everything. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Imagine your life not giving room for complaining, not giving room for grumbling. Seems impossible. Let me tell you a story. In 2016, I went to Louisville, Kentucky with a bunch of high school kids to the Challenge Conference. And the Challenge Conference is incredible. 6,000 high school kids worshiping together, singing incredible songs, incredible teachers, having a ton of fun. Uh, one of the elements of that week is service. And every day, they send like 100 school buses out into Louisville and you do service projects. And so some of the kids in my group were like, let's go do it. And I was like, all right, let's go do it. So we had no idea what we were going to to do. But they told us what time to be there and we jumped in our bus. They told us that we were going to be there in about 10 minutes. 10 minutes turned into 45 minutes because, I don't know, we got like lost or whatever. I'm not complaining. Haha. <laughs> not complaining because the logistics of 100 school buses and getting them all over the city is crazy. I don't know how they did it. It overwhelms me just to consider it. Anyway, so we finally arrived at our location. And our location was the original cemetery in the city of Louisville. Now this uh, cemetery had changed hands over the years, it, hundreds of years this place had existed, had changed hands over the years and it had been incredibly mismanaged. Incredibly mismanaged. And as a result, it had fallen into bankruptcy, nobody owned it, and it was in terrible disrepair. Like, like grass, super high, you could barely see a lot of the gravestones, and the gravestones that you could see were covered in moss, covered in algae, and our job was to walk into the cemetery and have a toothbrush or a wire brush or a hand scrubbing brush. We had to wear gloves because the chemicals that we were using were so volatile, and we had to scrub gravestones for three hours. Did you hear that? We had to scrub gravestones for three hours. 
So we're getting ready to go out. They like, they're getting us ready to go out. Put the first picture up. I don't know which, that's the one. So we're getting ready to go out to do our job when all of a sudden this massive thunderstorm rolls in. And we're talking like lightning and thunder and horizontal rain. And they're like, get inside. Only in the cemetery, inside is mausoleums. So we had to run into that mausoleum that was behind us, which is super creepy. We had to run into that mausoleum and wait out this terrible thunderstorm inside this building. So finally the thunderstorm is over and we go back out. Show us the next picture. Now when I say go out, we got soaking wet. Like it was whatever. So we went out and we worked for two and a half to three hours scrubbing gravestones. Now I want to let you know, this, like this story that I told you is a recipe for complaining. It is a recipe for being like, nah, -uh, this ain't what I signed up for. But I wish you could have been there because every single one of those students had the most incredible attitude. They had this incredible servant heart. They were ready to serve. It didn't matter what was next. They were in it. We were in it together. And I want to point out for you all, hey, <laughs> I want to point out for you all, there's Lexi, the guy in the back. He did not belong with our group. He was a random man who cared for the cemetery. He helped us. He, he wore a cool hat. He wore a white like tank top and cool suspenders. And he hung out with us for a couple hours. I like to believe I don't know if he's a believer. I don't know if he knows Jesus. But I like to believe that there's going to be a day where I'm going to see him in heaven and he's going to say, part of my story was that day. Part of my story was you high school kids, those high school kids had so many reasons to complain. But they had a great attitude. And I thought to myself, what's different about them? Why would they be like that? And it intrigued him. And he got connected to a church. He got connected to a group of people who introduced him to Jesus. And I'm going to see him first because I'm way older than all those kids. And he's going to say, where are those kids? And I'm going to say, trust me, they'll be here. And you'll get to talk to them. Yeah. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Think about this for a minute. Grumbling and arguing, they are the fruit of a lack of humility and trust. People who grumble and argue are the ones who put their own interests ahead of everyone and everything else. Oftentimes they're arrogant, they feel entitled to God's blessings because, and, and because of that, they protest when difficult situations come their way. Humility, on the other hand, causes us to realize there are so many things in this life that are more important than our personal comfort. Humility is the basis for joyful obedience even in the face of difficult life situations. I've been doing youth ministry for almost 20 years and I will tell all of you in this room, it wasn't in the good times that my kids grew closer to God. I mean, they took microscopic steps closer to Him. But it was in the, the garbage. It was in the tough times. It was in the stuff that me as a loving, caring adult would never choose for them. That's where God was at his best. Man, my kids have been through some of the hardest things, like way harder than the things I dealt with. It's tough to be a teenage kid in 2020. They would tell you if they were up here. It's in that mess 
that God shows up in huge ways, in powerful ways, in transformational ways. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, I'm going to say something really strong right now. Listen up. Whimpering, whining, and grumbling Christians are sinning. Sinning. Because they are being disobedient to God's command in these verses. God's command to be joyful and to not grumble. Essentially, what we're telling God is we know better. Essentially, we're telling God, God, you don't know what I need. I know what I need better than you need. And we are elevating ourselves in our own lives to the position of God. We don't have the ability to see our lives from from the perspective that he sees our lives from. If we could, then we would know the goodness of every moment of our lives. So why do we complain? Why do we grumble? Moving on. It says, if you can accomplish that, you will become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Contrast the brightness of a star with the darkness of space. Contrast those two things and ask yourself, does your life look like a star? Are you that different from the world that if the world is the darkness of space, you are shining like a star? If not, why? What is it? Is it pride? Is it a distrust of God? Is it that you're like, I'm saved and I'm good? And you're like, I don't need to continue to pursue a process of growing closer to Jesus? If you're not any different, what does that mean? I hope that that question makes you uncomfortable. I hope that you hear that and you go, okay, I got some soul searching to do. There's something about me that needs to change. If my life isn't different than the world, if I'm not shining like the stars in the sky, what does that mean? As we progressively become more and more like Jesus in the process of sanctification, working out our salvation, we will look different. And the world will be changed by it. The world will be changed by it. And then moving on, it says, in verse 16, it says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. As you hold firmly to the word of life. Where does the power to ultimately change come from? Can we will ourselves to it? We can't will ourselves to it. As you hold firmly to the word of life. Here here at Riverview, we have four core values, four of them. And one of our core values is God's truth over our opinion. Let's make it personal. God's truth over my opinion. I'm going to view everything in my life through the lens of God's truth. And the word of life is God's truth. So it says here, hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to God's words. Hold firmly to the truth that God has shared through his Bible. Are you holding firmly to it? Let me give you an example of holding firmly. Some of you have heard this story. In April, I was on a trip with my family. We were in um, Cabo, Cabo San Lucas. And there is a little beach called Lover's Beach. It's very calm and there's no waves and we hate that beach. So if you get dumped off at Lover's Beach, you can walk up over the sand dune over to the other side and you get to Divorce Beach. Divorce Beach is where the good waves are. 
So we went to Divorce Beach because we were there like 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever. And so it was an amazing day at Divorce Beach. The waves were crazy. And so Chloe and Emily were just kind of like chilling watching and Will, Gavin and I got in. Now Will, my son is 13. I've got about 120 pounds on Will. Gavin's probably got like 80 pounds on Will. And we're significantly taller. Gavin and I are out in these huge waves having the time of our lives. And Will is getting battered. He was just getting beat up. And I could tell, well, I couldn't tell because I was oblivious. This is me. I, I screwed up. Emily is watching Will and is getting concerned because he's getting tired. And all of a sudden, you can see there's this huge set of four waves coming in. And the first one just absolutely smokes Will. Knocks him to the ground, takes him up the beach, and then pulls him back. And as he's being pulled back, here comes the next wave. And he's about to get smoked laying on the ground by the next wave. Now, this is gonna happen a few times, and Emily screams, James, get Will! And so I'm just playing, bouncing along the waves, and I look and see what's happening. And I start swimming, running as quickly as I can towards Will. And I am racing the next wave in. And I get right to where Will is when this wave just absolutely crushes me in the back. It breaks on my back. And it knocks me to the ground. And Will is laying on the ground. Like he is, I mean, I can't, it's so scary now for me to even think about it. And so this wave is going back and it grabs my son and I know he is so tired and I know that he's going back and he's not coming, he's not coming back. And so I am right there beside him and he starts to go with the wave and I reach out and I grab hold of my son with a death grip. I grabbed hold of my son in a way that I have never grabbed hold of anybody in my entire life. I hurt him, but he didn't get pulled into the ocean. I gripped him firmly. And when that wave stopped pulling and the next one's coming in, I grabbed him and I ran as hard as I could up that beach, dragging my son. And we got out of the danger zone and we were gross, covered in sand. And my son is like coughing up water. And I'm exhausted. And my wife is hysterical. But I held him. I gripped him firmly. And because I gripped him so firmly, he was sitting in that seat that Eva is sitting in today. It says, hold firmly to the word of life. That's the picture that I have in my head. The world is pulling you under. The world is dragging you in. And there is death and temptation back there. And the word of God, the truth of God is right here. And as you're going past him, he reaches out and he grabs you. And he says, hang on. I'm not letting you go. Hold firmly to the word of life. Do you take a casual view of the Bible? Do you take an apathetic view of the Bible? Let me encourage you to consider coming back to it, to take a fresh look at it, to talk to somebody about what they're reading. Maybe you can study something together, have conversations about it. I know that it's sometimes incredibly difficult to read the Bible. I'm not standing up here saying, man, I read for 30 minutes every day. I've read the Bible 200 times in my life. That's just not the case. 
But I know that the words of life, they don't come from here. They don't come from here. They come from the Bible. Hold firm to the words of life. Hold firm to the words of life. So, work out your salvation in humility. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. If you can do that, you will shine like a star. And God's going to work that out as you live your life with him, taking in his truth. And so the results are Philippians 2, 16 through 18, the last part of 16. It says, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The tone of these last three verses is, again, you did it. You're doing a great job. And just know that as you live the Philippian church in unity, as you live Philippian church in humility, as you live Philippian church in joy, not complaining or grumbling, you bring me incredible joy because I know that the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, is being pushed forward. My joy, Paul, Paul's saying, my joy is found in the fact that you guys are making the gospel look incredible. You guys are making Jesus look so awesome. And I have joy because of it. Paul, my life, Paul's saying, my life is counted for something because of what I see in you. His ultimate desire was to please God by furthering the gospel. So I want to conclude by giving you five challenges that are really short. It sounds way more than it is. The first challenge is be unified. I'm sitting in a room full of broken people. There are hurt people in this room. There are people in this room that have hurt other people. What are you willing to do to, for, uni for unity? Are you willing to submit yourself to somebody and say, hey, I blew it. I screwed up. Will you forgive me? Will you graciously go to somebody and say, hey, I've been harboring this bitterness towards you and that's not okay. Or when you said that, it made me feel this. Let's be unified. Let's move together. The second thing is, can you be humble? Can you have an appropriate and accurate view of yourself? The third thing is, can you be hungry to grow? Work out your salvation. Be hungry to grow. And recognize, like it says in verse 13, that it's him who does the work in us. So stay connected to him. Can you be connected to him? And then the last thing, don't grumble. Don't argue. Can you be satisfied in him? Can you be satisfied with the life that he has chosen for you? Be unified. Be humble. Be hungry to grow. Be connected to him. Be satisfied. Those five things. If you can do those five things, you will shine as bright as a star in the night. You will stand as a beacon in this dark, dark, dark night that is the world that we live in. Let's pray. God, I, um, I pray for everybody in this room and just the battle that's going on inside of our heads right now. 
and the lies that Satan is trying to tell us to convince us that we're okay, we're doing pretty good. And I pray, God, that you would have your way. Have your way. And that you, um, with energy, would change us. Would reveal something about us that needs to change today. That we would have the courage to go after the change that you want for us. What a gift our salvation is. And truthfully, what a gift it is that you never leave us and that you sanctify us. Help us to have the mind of Christ more and more every single day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.